You are listening to the Five Acre Parables Podcast. Welcome to the Five Acre Parables Podcast. I almost forgot the name of our podcast uh, five seconds in, so we're already doing great for our first episode. With me uh, is my... Can I call you a co-host? Are you fine with being co-host? You can call me whatever you want. Uh, except late for supper. <laughs> yeah, co-host is fine, man. Co-host Andrew House. I am Daniel Meinson. Uh, I actually wrote bios. I didn't even tell you this. I wrote bios for us. Sweet. So are you ready to hear this? Yes. And just in case people do not know who we are, uh, my bio I wrote says I am currently the minister at the Pittsburgh Church of Christ and a purveyor of odd jobs. Uh, I graduated FHU, uh, Fried Hardman University, with a Bachelor of Science in Bible, specifically ministry, and in 2020 purchased our five acres in Kansas to start homesteading. Daniel likes to do anything related to becoming more self-sufficient. Is there anything you think the audience needs to know about me besides that? Um, there are a lot of similarities not in your bio between us, which is part of what makes oh. this podcast so much fun. Well, that we're, we're getting to that. We're getting to that. <laughs> so here's your bio. Here's how I would introduce you to the people that I love and care about. Andrew House is the manager of Ponderosa Sawmill. Is that fair enough? <laughs> I'll tell you the story behind being the manager of the mill whenever you're done with the bio. Okay. Is the manager of the Ponderosa Sawmill and a homesteading expert is what I wrote. I know you wouldn't call yourself that, but I would. Uh, he, lives on, right. he lives on five acres in the Ozark Mountains in Missouri. He is also a lover of fruit trees. That was very important for me to put in your bio. Absolutely. Andrew is also a deacon at the Highlandville Church of Christ and a dedicated Bible student and teacher. Now, again, if you wrote that, that would sound a little pretentious, but I wrote that about you because I fully believe that. And that was one of the reasons I wanted you to do this with me. So thanks. Also, funny enough, in common, we, you may have caught that we both own five acres homesteads, hence the name Five Acre Parables. Uh, we also both happen to love Christian women named Elizabeth. Not the same one, different ones. But also they have a lot of similarities as well. And we also both have three kids. Again, not the same three kids. We each have our own three kids. Is there any yeah. other similarities? Uh, well, we're pretty pretty close in age. I'm, I've got you by a little bit on age, but not much. Uh, we both wear glasses. We both have beards. We both have dark hair. That's getting thinner uh, than it used to be. Yes. The hair the hair is losing. I'm trying to gain on you in the beard department. Uh, it's not working great yet, but we're getting there. Uh, I would also consider, uh, as a declaration of love, I would also consider Andrew one of my best friends and closest Christian brothers. So there you go. I want the people to know that getting started. So yeah, did a, one of my bestest friends and closest Christians. We kind of have to talk a little bit since this is the first episode. Uh, we've obviously already had these conversations off the air, but we kind of need to talk about a little bit 
uh, about what the purpose of this podcast is. Yeah. The goal is to basically to talk about whatever we want to talk about because we like talk. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, we're specifically, obviously, both very interested. We do a lot of homesteading stuff, a lot of different things, but a lot of similar things we do uh, related to what I would consider the modern homesteading movement, kind of the uh, back to producing our own food, getting away from, you know, more modern living that doesn't seem to be as beneficial as everybody thinks it is type stuff. Also, we love talking about the Bible because the Bible is the most important thing in the world. So we like talking about that quite a bit. So I figured why not smash the two together into a podcast. And I mean, that's pretty much what our phone conversations are anyway. Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I, for, I forgot to tell you my manager story. Okay. So whenever I left the hospital in 2014, uh, there was a ton of competition there. People were always trying to get promoted. And whenever I went to the, uh, <clears throat> to the, sawmill full-time with my father-in-law. It's just the two of us. There's only two people there. It's a small operation. As a joke, I put that I was the director of labor at Ponderosa Sawmill because I am the labor. Like that's pretty much it. It's, it's my father-in-law and me, and I'm the one picking up the most heavy stuff. So that was just a joke with the guys that I, I left at the hospital and then there was always people fighting to get promoted and uh, and get ahead and get a higher title and more pay and stuff like that. So as a joke, one day I changed. I said I feel like getting a promotion. So I'm a manager now. I'm the manager of of the sawmill. And so that was a that was a big old joke. And actually, like last year, I ended up pulling that off of Facebook. I think it, it's or I tried at some point because I didn't want someone that I met through the church to be like, "Oh, that guy's actually like way high up." No, it, it started. <laughs> <with a> joke. <laughs> Reminds me, I saw some guy online that posted. Uh, he owned his own business. Was the joke, but he posted and said, "Because we have this great employee here, we've decided to give him a three day, three night, all expenses trip paid to." Arkansas to hunt and fish. And it's just him giving himself it's just an employee him. He's the only one in the company. Weekend. <laughs> yeah. And then and then he shared it from his personal page. He shared the business post from his personal page and said, so thankful to have a great boss. That's funny. So that reminds me of what you're doing here. All right. So I've updated your uh bio to say director of labor at the Congress. <laughs> And only if you listen to all the episodes will you actually know that that's a joke. So, yeah. All right. I also didn't tell you uh, that we are doing an ad read for a sponsor already. Sweet. Uh, we don't have an official sponsor. In fact, they don't even know they are sponsoring this episode. But as kind of a joke and also seriously, uh, we're going to take this time to pretend we have a sponsor in the Collie House publications uh, with my brother-in-law and sister, Caleb and Rebecca Colley, they are putting out a Bible character studies for congregation and family use that just released a few days ago at PTP. Uh, have you seen any of this yet, Andrew? I have seen the cover and a pinch of the artwork. Uh, my Elizabeth is really excited about it, though. Caleb and Rebecca have done a really good job putting together Bible character information that in a fun and easy way for kids to remember. Uh, it's really good for 
evening Bible time with the kids. And so they don't know it, but they're sponsoring our first episode. And so we want to give you the opportunity to check that out. Uh, it's a curriculum, a flashcard set, and a timeline to help kids learn about Bible characters. Yeah, and they can find that at the Collie House, right? Yes, uh, we're going to put the link in the show notes is Sweet. what we're going to do. But it's the CollieHouse.org, and that has gone on sale a few days ago. It's a really good thing, and I'm excited to use it in our household, and sounds like you are too. So we're going to pretend that they're our sponsor for tonight. I guess we'll jump straight into the show topic uh, that we have two show topics for tonight. What we're going to try to do is we're going to talk for a little while on uh, some homesteading stuff. And then we're going to talk for a little while about some Bible stuff, which, like I said, that's pretty much how most of our phone conversations go anyway. Yeah, they kind of meander back and forth sometimes. So for this first episode now next episode we're going to record after this weekend hopefully uh we are going to the ozarks homesteading convention in marshfield missouri this weekend so we'll probably talk about that next time and kind of give our thoughts on what we saw there but for this time i thought it was interesting thinking about kind of some of the things that we've done uh kind of comparing again we have five acres each but mine is in Kansas and yours is in Missouri. And it really couldn't be more different uh, just in terms of what the land can do and what it can produce. And so we've both tried many different sources of homegrown meat. That's something that as the, uh, that in my opinion, as the prices go up, that's one of the first things to go up is meat at the grocery store. So uh, between us, correct me if I'm wrong, we have both done chickens. You have done rabbits, goats, and pigs. Yep. And I have done cows. Yep. And this, the purpose of this discussion is not to tell you everything you need to know about raising any of these animals, but kind of just, it's interesting. We have five different ideas and opinions. So just kind of an overview of what we think is easy, what we think is hard. Uh, what's good, what's not good, what's easy for a beginner to do, what's not easy. So, Andrew, why don't you start off by kind of telling us a little bit about the meat that you've raised for your family? Sure. So with pigs, I actually, I don't know if you know this, but whenever I was young, like, oh, somewhere around 10 years old, um, I got some pigs and dad did most of the grunt work on it, but it was my idea. I saved up my, my money and bought hog panels and we raised a couple of pigs out past the edge of the yard over, um, in Oldfield where mom and dad's house is and took them to the slaughterhouse. Didn't see it, just raised the pigs, ate the pigs. Dad ended up buying the corn and, um, helped me out on that end. Cause I didn't know what I was doing as a kid with pigs. If you're going to do it, the way I would recommend doing it is infrastructure intensive. Pigs do best on pasture if you don't want a nasty, smelly pen. Like if you put them in a 16 by 16 pen or a 20 by 20 pen, I don't care what you do outside of putting them on top of massive amounts of charcoal and hay, it is going to stink. And it's going to stink bad. And so nobody really enjoys that. I mean, the pigs can live in that, but they don't enjoy it as much as they would being on 
grass or um, in a rotation system is what I would really recommend. Pigs have a lot of bonuses, a lot of pros, because they can eat anything. Like that's going to be my big thing for chickens when we talk about chickens is they can eat practically anything. Anything you would eat, a lot of the stuff you won't eat, pigs will eat and convert into meat. The problem is you're going to have to buy feed. Like unless you have a source of food somewhere, you're going to have to buy some feed at some point. And that's a con to me a little bit is that they eat a lot of feed. So it's going to make you dependent on the feed store and feed prices. Uh, but pigs are a, a, not a good starter animal, I don't think. But they are fantastic at converting feed and scraps into meat that you can turn around and put in your freezer. And you haven't done as much home butchering as I have, but you've done quite a bit. If you can do a deer, you can do a pig. Um, recently some friends gave us three hogs and if they weren't 500 pounds, I'll eat my hat. The, the smallest one was at least five huge hogs. And yeah, it was a pain because they were big and harder to handle and maneuver around, mm -hmm. but you can break them down essentially just like a deer with the exception that there's bacon and the ribs are worth keeping. And so pigs are a really good, good source of meat. You just need to know what you're getting into. You need to have a good plan going into it on how you're going to keep them and have a plan for what you're going to do with them. Because if you get hung with a, an extra hog, those suckers, when they get big, they eat a lot of food. And so you want to have a plan on how you're going to get rid of them so you're not hung with a, a big feed bill at the end of every week for your, your hog or hogs. We, uh, uh, last year when I went to this Ozarks homesteading expo, uh, that we're going to be going to this weekend, they had a guy there last year. He's going to be there again this year. It's Brandon Sheard. I don't know if I'm saying his name right, but he's the farmstead meat smith. Uh, and he did a whole class. They actually, I was impressed that the fairgrounds allowed him to do this. They actually let him, they had a live hog there. And the very first thing he did was dispatched it they had a like i said they i was shocked they let him do this uh but he had a gun there and showed how to safely euthanize it and then went through the whole process but he does this so much that he had a box truck with a freezer built in the back of it and had a winch and a crane oh yeah made it look so easy but i'm sitting there thinking you know if i'm gonna do this at some point in time uh the actual work didn't seem too hard Right. And the other thing, uh, and I think this is going to become important uh, when we talk about rabbits here in a second. The other thing I think that's interesting about pigs is it is a more common meat that people are used to and people yep. are not going to turn up their nose at it as much. Yep. Now, I hated, I hated bacon growing up because I was dumb. I was very dumb for hating bacon. Uh, but most of the time it's one of those meats that people are more used to yep. that people will actually eat. One thing else I'll throw out that pigs offer that nothing else offers in the same way is lard. Uh, we're going to bring you some pig fat, uh, when yep. we come over that way tomorrow. Uh, so you guys can mess with trying to render some lard down, but, um, like back in the day before world war, uh, one and two, essentially, uh, lard was what everybody used to cook with around here in, in our area. And it's shelf stable once you render it down. I mean, you can put it on a shelf and leave it there in a jar for, I mean, covered 
for months and months and not have to worry about it going rancid. It's easy to tell when it does start to go rancid and you can pitch it out. Elizabeth made a pie. She makes really good pies. My favorite is rhubarb pie. And she is well known for making really good pie crusts too. And she made a pie crust for the first time with lard instead of butter flavored Crisco. And it was the best pie crust she's ever made. And that's saying a lot. So lard is something that you can consider that you're going to get from your hog. If you do take it to a butcher, uh, don't let them keep that. Tell them you want the fat back and you can render it down yourself at home. You can do it in a crock pot. It's super easy. Before we move on from pigs, uh, any just basic, we talked about the area that they need to be in. They need to be on rotational, but you're on the side of a mountain, basically. My land is completely flat. Do you think that you could raise hogs on your property? Yeah. Yeah. People used to do it in the, in the hills and hollers over here all the time. What they did is in the fall, they would keep them pinned up for the most part, or they would have a really large fence and they would throw corn out by the barn just to get them trained to come up when they wanted them to come up so they could kill them when they wanted. Uh, But they would turn them loose into the hollers and hills with just enough fence to keep them in and let them clean up acorns. And so that's how they got their hogs fat in the fall was by picking up nuts and, you know, hickories, acorns, walnuts and such in the woods. And they didn't have to feed them. It was a free meat source essentially beyond that point. So it can be done. If it's done poorly, it will destroy your hillsides and cause worse erosion and worse soil compaction and all sorts of stuff like that. But if it's done right, it can, it can be one of the few ways that you can glean some meat out of scrub oak timber around here. Because in comparison to that, so moving on to the next one, uh, our cows, we had two meat cows from, and I wish I remembered the dates a little bit better, but it would be from April of 2022 till we finally got them into the butcher. I want to say February of this year. So February, 2023. So we had them almost a year. And again, we're out in Kansas. Uh, We have five acres, three and a half of that's actually pasture. And last year in Kansas was the worst drought ever recorded. Uh, Like since they've been recording rainfall levels it's the worst drought in this area ever recorded and we had three and a half acres of really good grass and we did not have that by the end of it our cows were actually losing weight and that's when we had to start bringing in uh, a lot of external feed so if you have the right property cows can be great they taste amazing again i'll go back to you know, in terms of what people will eat, beef is probably the most common out of all the meats. I don't know many people who just don't like anything beef. You know, a lot of people, majority of people love a good steak, love a good burger. It's rare that somebody will turn down a hamburger. Yeah, exactly. Uh, We loved it. We didn't have any problems selling it. We were able to sell quite a bit of it to recoup our cost. Um, and depending on depending on how you look at it, we we didn't make money, but we did come out with getting our meat for free, and we got over two hundred pounds, about two hundred fifty pounds that we kept for ourselves. Finally, by the end of it, 
which is really good. But again, it's very intensive on infrastructure. We had perfect fence up, we thought, and the very first week we had them, one broke out yep. and got onto the neighbor's property. So if you're not used to, if you're not used to big animals, definitely not a starter one for sure. We had the benefit of having uh, another good friend of ours that I was able to call for advice quite a few times, actually two friends, uh, called Brian quite a bit. And I called Jason Maples quite a bit too. Yep. <laughs> Talking about cows and trying to figure out what to do with them. But yeah, they were, had to train them to get in the trailer you had to have a trailer to get them to the thing, or you would have had to pay somebody. And if you don't have the infrastructure to pin them up and force them into the trailer, you have to train them to go in and eat. There's no other way to do it. Yeah. Oh, speaking of loading in a trailer, I'm going to go back to hogs for just a second. That's fine. You have got to have a plan to get your hogs in a trailer. <laughs> yeah. Um, because they are harder to load than cows, I, I would say, just because cows can hop in a trailer a whole lot easier. Hogs are so low to the ground, unless you have a like unique setup where your trailer is lower than your pen, uh, it is hard for them to get up in there. So when we loaded those three hogs at Scott and D's, it took like three of us and a cattle panel <laughs> and a lot of um, smacking them on the hind end with a, a stick to kind yeah. of motivate them up. And at first I was like, this is going to go pretty easy. But the first round we went, one of them just decided it wanted to go the other way and it wasn't being aggressive yeah. or mean or anything. And there was no stopping that thing. They are so low and so big and so strong. They are hard to work with cows are even bigger they're at least a little taller off the ground but if you have hogs you need a you need a plan to to get mm -hmm. get them somewhere else yeah uh i'm assuming most people that are listening to this probably don't know the story but i had a butcher date for those cows originally right before thanksgiving of last year and my plan to get them in the trailer was insufficient and i was i completely failed on that day and had to take the next available date, which was February, uh, which really ate into any sort of hope for profit that we had there at all. Yeah. But butcher dates are something somebody needs to consider if they're not doing their own. We do everything ourselves, so butcher dates don't bother us. But Yes. But with a cow, you were working with hogs that were 500 pounds. Uh, our cows were... 1,050 and 900, if I remember correctly. Yeah, yeah. By the time they were done. There's literally no way unless you have. Uh, Brian and I have done it one time where we had to uh, put down a cow, and we basically field dressed it like you would a deer, but he had to use an $80,000 John Deere tractor to lift yeah. it up. So, you know, that's not something that anybody – very many people, unless you're in the business, that's not something you just have around. So, yeah. Now going smaller though, you have done goats before. Yeah. I guess since we started off with the big ones, we'll just go down from there. Goats yeah. are kind of the medium sized one that we have experience with. Uh, and I know sheep 
we have we do not have any experience with sheep. I have heard that they are similar to goats in the butchering process, not in the care of them, but in the butchering process, it's somewhat similar. Just in size, yeah, they're exact. They're that. exactly like deer, uh, all the way around. Sheep if anybody's are- ever ever butchered a deer or field dressed a deer, then you can do a goat or a sheep the same way. There's one exception on goats. Uh, I'm going to start backwards a little bit. Rather than care, we're going to go straight into butchering. Um, you want to bleed a goat. Um, it makes the meat taste less strong. And with a deer, I mean, you shoot a deer, you get to it and it's dead and then you field dress it. There's not much bleeding it most of the time. But with a goat, if you're able, like all the recommendations from the old timers that used to run goats to clear scrub brush around here that I've ever talked with, they all recommend bleeding the goats. You don't really want to know the way that was recommended to me to do the best, the best job <laughs> of bleeding a goat, but um, that's highly recommended. So with goats, I will never have goats again. I hate goats with a fiery <laughs> passion at this point in my life. I got into goats with the idea they we had more brush than pasture over here. Still do at this point. I'm slowly clearing it and trying to convert it to more usable land than just scrub brush. But uh, they they did a good job of clearing the brush, but they are a pain in the neck. They want to get out. And I, I had good field fence up that I built and took a lot of time to make good fence. And I've witnessed the fence hold cows when the neighbor's cows got loose and came over here. Cow would not get through the fence. Goats were going over the fence, <laughs> uh, just standing there and could clear, clear leap over it four and a half foot wow. high. There were a, a lot of issues with, there's issues with worms a lot of times if you're not doing a very fancy aggressive rotational mob grazing system, which takes a lot of infrastructure and a lot of time. Uh, for somebody that's working a full-time job and your wife is busy doing wife things and church things and mother things. Three kids. Three kids. And with, yeah. yeah, with three kids to take care of and grocery pickups and, again, church stuff. I mean, it cuts into a lot of time. You need to have a plan about how much, be realistic about how much time these animals are going to take. If you want to do a rotational system, which is what is the most recommended, that takes time every single day to pick up and do that. And so that's the way I would go if I was going to try goats again, but I will never try goats again. Um, they, they will strip the bark off of trees. I'm a guy that is more so leaning into trees more and more as the homestead years go on. And if you leave them in a pen long enough, they will strip the bark off of small trees and kill trees. Uh, they are very hard on your pasture any anything they have to browse or, or graze on and after um if you, have you read mark shepherd's book on regenerative agriculture i haven't yet no do you have audible yes okay i think it's free on audible it's it's definitely worth listening to um sometime but he talks about how goats usually are the most destructive on a pasture or a forest if you turn them loose in in woods with grass like I had out here. And I absolutely, I, I witnessed it. They will literally eat everything down to the ground except for toxic weeds if you have toxic weeds out there. And they are just destructive. 
if you don't manage them well. And I did not manage them as well as I should have. And I was not impressed with their willingness to survive. (laughs) Uh, We had a few of them just go down for seemingly no reason. Um, They are really, really susceptible to barber pole worms. So you have to be on top of that. And we just, we did not have good experiences with goats. Goats are incredibly popular right now. Their price is outrageous to me for what I see people selling goats for. And I know there are people that raise goats and make money off of it, but you have to be pretty committed and have a really good system in place to not have huge headaches with goats. And I should bring up, there's a difference between meat goats and dairy goats. I was doing meat goats. The dairy goats, from what I've seen, and I've watched some videos of some people, you build more of a relationship with them. And there's kind of that long term, you know, where they do actually like you to some degree and want to be around you, which can be a pain, but can also be good. A, a well-trained dairy goat is much more well-behaved than your average old meat goat. My problem yeah. is, and you you were mentioning meat cows earlier. We didn't talk about dairy cows. I will not tie myself to a dairy animal. We have busy schedules, and I do not want to tie myself twice a day, every single day, for months and months and months on end to a schedule of being here for a dairy animal. And I know you're the same way. I mean, your life gets busy, and if you aren't there for a day, having a dairy animal, you have to have somebody to go take care of that dairy animal. So if you want to do dairy goats, that is a little bit different animal, especially because it opens up uh, Nigerian dwarfs, smaller goats, much easier to handle. Usually they're much easier to contain. And that, that is a better option than just jumping into meat goats from what I've seen. They have a desire to work with you. But yeah, we're specifically talking about meat sources at this point. But yes, yeah. you're right. So I I don't recommend goats at all. I see. Oh, that's what I was going to bring up. Um, goat owners, on average, have goats for less than five years. And I think that is a really startling statistic for an animal that is like incredibly popular right now. The only people that are keeping goats long-term are the crazy hippie goat people. I mean, they, you can just, whenever you look at them, they've got this crazy gleam in their eye and they march to the beat of a different drum. They are different people. And you need to ask yourself before you get into goats, am I going to be a crazy goat person that is keeping goats five, 10, 15 years later? And if the answer is no, then just skip goats altogether and go to something different and don't waste your time and effort well and we need to move on from goats but the other thing we didn't cover is goat meat is one of those ones i've had goat meat that's really good um but i was also really reluctant to try it yeah it makes i should say one of those meats that you're starting to get into really this is goat i don't want to try this you get start to get into the picky side of things so yeah it makes incredible chili. It really does. It makes really good chili. But um, it is strongly flavored. It is yeah. not It is not mild like chicken or rabbit. It is not as tame as beef. It has some wang to it. 
Yeah. And no matter how you handle it, no matter how you prepare it, no matter how careful you are about not touching the hide to the meat, um, it, it, it has a flavor to it. And so and it's it not is, necessarily bad, but it also isn't necessarily good either. Depends on your taste. Yes. It is much harder to share or barter with. I would definitely suggest if you're interested in doing goats still after that gleaming recommendation from Andrew, uh, if you're still interested in goats, go eat some first. Yeah. Don't get don't get two years into taking care of goats and finally butcher one and then be like, oh, I hate this. Yeah, you don't you don't want to butcher an eighty pound goat goats. and put all that meat in the freezer, eat your first meal, and say we don't really care for this, and you have packages and packages yeah. of meat in the freezer to do something with. Yep. Yep. Now continuing on from that though. The easy one is chicken. Yeah. Because uh, everybody eats chicken. Everybody likes chicken. Uh, most people, I have figured out very quickly, don't really think about. They know what a chicken is, and they know what a chicken tastes like, but they do not think about how one gets from one to the other. Yeah. So chicken's easy to convince people because also, you know, a lot of people have grown up doing rotisserie chicken over here in the Pittsburgh, Kansas area. There is five or six fried chicken restaurants that have their origins in the mining around here. The miners' wives started these and there's a competition and blah, blah, blah. But everybody likes chicken. Everybody eats whole chicken. I was not raised eating chicken with the bone in, but a lot of people were and they like it. You know, so to some degree, chicken's one of the ones, it's the smallest one, it's the easiest to handle, in my opinion, and it's the one that people are more, you know, when you get your friends over that aren't homesteady people, they're totally fine with eating it. Then yeah. the cows, but like I said, the cows are big. Yeah, chickens are much more manageable for everybody, too. I think that's something important. I will say that something you need to factor in with chickens is infrastructure and that really goes with everything with goats uh sheep cows anything big you need fencing and you need to have your pasture planned out um and how much fencing is going to cost if you don't have existing fencing or if you have existing fencing like you had and you have to make repairs to it what that's realistically going to be and factor that in uh to your animal costs with chickens, though, chickens offer an incredible amount of flexibility. Like when I raise chickens um, and hatch them out, I run them in a tractor for at least four months in the backyard. And that cuts down on feed costs incredibly. I usually have a bag of starter. And then I know this is like not the, the way everybody says you need to keep them on starter feed for forever. I switch to corn whenever I put them on grass. They live on grass and bugs in the tractor and corn, and they love it. And they get big and they grow well. So that's how I, I get them to the size where I move them into my, um, I have a, a run and a coop built into one with enough space to be adequate. And I use them as compost machines in there. Just in case uh, for our audience, when we say tractor, uh, we both have different ones, but a chicken tractor is kind of the term that has come to be for a movable coop, basically. 
Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of different designs. I have a really big one that I built. Uh, it's very hard to move with just one person, which is kind of one of my big gripes about it. Uh, but chicken tractors can be really small, can be really big. There's a bunch of good designs. Um, and you move them around on a pretty consistent basis, which I just saw on Instagram the other day, somebody did a flyover drone video of them moving their, uh, tractor every day. And the land just comes back. The grass just comes back. Amazing. If yep. you don't let them on there so long, it kills them. Now, my problem is mine is so big. I don't go move it every day. And so. You know, that's a thing, too. Yours is a lot. Your chicken tractor is a lot smaller, isn't it? Yeah, it has to be over here. I'm running yeah. a 4 uh, a by 8 I actually have two of them. But um, the problem with having a big chicken tractor in my yard is it is so uneven. We're on a uh -huh. – our house is in a spot that was cut out of a, a hillside. So our yard has, like, almost no level spots. Everything is on a slope. And so the bigger you get, the more trouble you have finding a spot where the tractor rests on the ground level or just evenly mm -hmm. where it doesn't leave spots for a predator to try to come under. Well, and I've, I've even had that problem over here in Kansas where, uh, you know, just dips from erosion or from the water flowing through the yard and stuff like that. They've even caused some. I actually, when I was moving the chicken tractor one time, uh, one of the chickens got stuck and squeezed under the back of it. I ran him over. Uh, yep. He was perfectly fine because it happened to be in one of those low spots in the yard. They just, and it was a younger chicken. And he just popped right under and then just was like, wait a second, where'd my coop go? Uh, yep. But even, even in Kansas, I've had some problems with that too. I think any future chicken tractors are going to be a little bit smaller than the big one that I have. Yeah. Uh, also, because I'd really like, <laughs> I'd really like for the kids to be able to move it as part of their daily chores. Yeah, I just settle for them watering the chickens in mine. Yeah, because <laughs> my <laughs> mine is mine's pretty heavy because I built it out of scrap lumber because I have yeah. free lumber everywhere. But, but I I do think we should bring up chicken breeds a little bit if we're talking about meat chickens. If you're yes. serious about meat chickens then Cornish crosses are what the vast majority of people run. Their feed conversion rate is literally unparalleled. You cannot find an animal that has a better feed conversion rate than a Cornish cross mm -hmm. chicken. They're ready to go in six weeks. They're not a freak of nature, but they're a freak of um, insanely good breeding. Um, most people that are homesteading like heritage breeds. Uh, Bard Rocks, Rhode Island Reds, Buff Orpingtons. You got some Orpingtons. Yep. Um, and those are great chickens, but their feed conversion rate is nowhere near a Cornish Cross. Cornish Cross is ready no. to go with the chicken carcass you see in the in the grocery store in six weeks. Now that that specifically, this is where we may argue a little bit. Uh, you're very you're right. I'm not going to argue with this. The only the, the difference in the way that I've done this and we have done uh, with some of our neighbors here, some of our friends from church uh, who live close to us, we have done raising the meat chickens, you know, just meat chickens. Mm -hmm. But our uh, ours are buff Orpingtons, but we hatched a bunch of ours out this year because we had uh, Dale Jr., a rooster we got from you. 
which he was what Rhode Island Red and Long Leghorn Longhorn not Longhorn Leghorn it's Leghorn. yeah he he was a he was an ISA Brown which is a a complex hybrid of the stuff you mentioned but yeah so he was that and we crossed him with our buffs and we hatched out about I don't remember the exact numbers about twenty chickens uh and we kept all the hens and we just butchered all of the roosters Mm -hmm. so what andrew's talking about with the feed conversion rate yeah it took us about 16 weeks to get those chickens ready to a point where they were worth butchering but i will also throw out there that they were free yeah that that is the big hang-up i see with cornishes um you're you're never going to be able to produce them on your on your own and just like we were talking about certain animals will make you entirely dependent on the feed store with yeah. regular chickens you can more or less if you had to raise them without the feed store like that my grandma and grandpa on their farm down on blue creek years ago but way before i was ever born they never fed their chickens anything except a little bit of corn sometimes. And they had eggs and they would go shoot chickens and cook them for dinner. But with Cornish crosses, they have pretty much got to have access to feed if you're ever going to get them to grow the way they're supposed to. And you're never going to raise them on your own. Daniel was talking about hatching out his chickens. I've hatched out our chickens before. And yeah, you cannot do that with a Cornish. You can keep a Cornish if you can keep them alive. They're not meant to stay alive past six weeks, but there are people no. that through feed restriction and some other tricks have managed to get them old enough to lay eggs. And they actually lay eggs pretty decent. They still eat a ton if you allow them to, but you can lay eggs and, and get baby Cornish crosses, but they don't grow like they like their parents do. They just don't. Their feed conversion rate drops down again. The big draw for Cornishes is their rate of growth with their feed yes. conversion. So, yeah, Daniel mentioned 16 weeks to get to like a butcher size for most heritage birds. Cornishes are done in six. So by the time you're done with a round of heritage birds, you can literally run through two, and two and rounds and be part of the way through a third round of Cornishes. Yes. So if you're trying to if you're trying to slam the most birds through your system as as quickly as you can, which I wouldn't argue that's always best for sure. But if that's your goal, Cornishes are where you're going to have to go. But again, it comes with cost. You you have to order them from a from a hatchery. It depends on what you're trying to do. Yeah. Um, and and what your goal is. Our goal was simply just like we don't want to see any of the birds we hatch go to waste. Yeah. But we don't need eight roosters either. Yeah. So we weren't doing it as, as a, uh, this is the cheapest way to do it. Although, like I said, they were free because we just kept eggs out of, out of our, I almost call it a herd, uh, right. out of our flock. We just kept eggs out of our flock and did it that way. But our goal was not to let's get as many birds through as possible. It was just, we want to use all of these birds. Yeah. I, I have shifted away from focusing on chickens for meat and have started leaning much harder into raising chickens for eggs. Mm -hmm. And with that, if you're raising your own chickens at all, with that comes butchering the occasional bird because you get a rooster and you don't need an extra rooster yeah. like you were talking about. So 
chicken meat is more of a byproduct of our egg production at this point over at our place. Yeah. Uh, the other thing we'll, we need to mention uh, before we move into rabbits is with chickens, they are, I believe they're easy to do, uh, easy to process yourself. Uh, you need to watch some videos and you need to read about it. And, you know, if you have the opportunity to go over to a neighbor that's doing it, have them help you with it. But they are easy to do. And if you mess one up, you're only out. 10 15 dollars at the most it's not like you know you're going in butchering a a, a pig or a cow that you spent 400 500 700 dollars on and spent all this time invested in and if you mess it up you've lost a year of your life and a thousand dollars or anything like that so yeah. chickens are really good in my opinion if you've never done this before start with a chicken there's the most information out there. There's the most videos to watch, the most tutorials. They're the easiest. And if you mess one up, you're not out a million dollars and a million years of your life or anything like that. Yeah. And, and they're definitely the most beginner friendly, I think. Like there's yeah. the shortest learning curve. It is hard to mess chickens up. You can do it, but you just about got to go out of your way to mess up raising chickens yes. one way or the other. So if you take away one message from this podcast, it is you can do chickens. You can definitely That's, do chickens. That may be our first. That may be our first T-shirt there. <laughs> I also think you should like we should bring up. Chickens are the most flexible and the most useful of all the animals we've mentioned for all around homestead utility. Like you can use them yes. for bug cleanup if you have a grasshopper problem in your in your pasture. And you're able to. We're we can't just free range our chickens all the time. They destroy the garden, and we have a ton of predators around here. But if you're able to free range your chickens, they will just go crazy out there eating bugs. I use them to compost in the chicken run. Like I throw tons of carbon in there, leaves, sawdust, all sorts of stuff. Let them mix that up, dig it up, and throw food scraps out there. And I get a like way over. A cubic yard more like a yard and a half to two yards of free compost every year whenever i clean out their run one time a year yeah uh, you can if you have a tractor and you're you need them to uh, improve some soil that you're going to turn into a garden plot the next year you can keep them in a tractor and have them tear up the dirt and put a lot of manure down and and they yep. they're just extremely useful flexible homestead friendly animals and beginner friendly again i'll go back to our very first three chickens uh you gave us and we were only able to keep them alive for five days before predators got them yeah uh, but even then you only lost you know 15 dollars giving them to us it's not uh, they were free i hatched them out so well so there you go i had uh, i had a little bit of chick starter you, in them and that's it if you go into tractor supply and you buy the premium top of the line chickens, you're still only out six dollars each. Yep. And so the fact of the matter is you will lose chickens, they will die, you will be sad. I'm still sad that we lost our original three chickens. Over two years later, I'm still sad about it. But it's not gonna be cause your family to become destitute over it <laughs> either. No. So, no. And, and also, we we like to get into the stuff like to a deeper level where we're hatching our own and stuff. How I first got into chickens years ago 
was I found some worn out egg layers from an, an egg factory down the road that a guy had bought a whole tractor trailer load of them and was selling them for $8 a piece. I spent, oh, what was it? $32 cash in hand. And this is no joke. His one-eyed neighbor, he wasn't home. His one-eyed neighbor ran around the yard with a fishing net, helping me catch them to take them home. And for $32 and the infrastructure of the, the chicken coops that I built, we got into getting eggs and I eventually ate some of them, most of them eventually. So, I mean, the start out costs with the exception of chicken wire at this point, if you're going to use chicken wire to build stuff are pretty low. Now, we should probably save the rest of chickens for another episode. We all love chickens. Chickens are great. Trying yeah, we to can talk about chickens stuff. a long time. Yep. So meat-wise, rabbits is the last one that we have experience with. I have not raised rabbits for meat. I have raised rabbits. I had a rabbit before I had a dog. I love them. They're cute. Uh, they scratch you to death, so... My arms bear the story of having many rabbits. <laughs> um, but I have had, the, I have eaten rabbit meat, but I have not personally converted a rabbit to rabbit meat. And I don't want to. I know I could if I needed to, but I don't want to. So, Andrew, you're the one with experience with this. You bunny killer, you. We've done rabbits. Mom and dad did rabbits when I was a kid. Uh, so we had experience with it then. Like everybody that's an old, old timer in my family at this point, like raised rabbits at some point and loved rabbits. And I've had rabbits twice. And this current time, like, oh man, last winter, we were running an average of about 45 rabbits is what we had. Um, as soon as we butchered one one round, another couple of litters would be born. And that's just running a trio of two, two does and a buck and a colony. I'm a big fan of raising them in a colony at this point for reasons I'll talk yeah. about in a second. I'll tell you where rabbits shine. There's a, a few really big pros that I do like about rabbits. They are very good at converting dandelions and grass into meat. So if I am out in the garden and pulling weeds uh, unless it's something that can't go to them which is a pretty small list around here it goes to the rabbits and they they love it Dan they will go out of their way to eat dandelions because they love them so much and they are absolutely the easiest thing in the world to clean for meat on the homestead one cut across the back you rip the hide down both ways you make four quick cuts around the the feet and pop them off and then pinch the guts, make a cut, cut up the belly, cut it through the ribs, pop through the rib cage and rip the guts out and you're done. Then you send it into your wife to, to work up in the kitchen, but incredibly fast. I would clean 10 rabbits over one chicken. I know you, you say that chickens are, are easy and you don't mind chickens. I mind chickens a whole lot more than rabbits but I'm skinning instead of plucking whenever I clean yes. rat or chickens. So one conversation we had recently on the phone, you yeah. were holding the phone with your shoulder and talking to me while butchering rabbits. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're that easy. 
Um, something else rabbits do very well at is they have a quick turnaround for like things you can raise at home. Uh, 12 weeks is what our butcher date was at and our rabbits weighed over five pounds. The good ones, we were averaging around five pounds and per rabbit in a litter before butcher at 12 weeks. That's better than you're going to do with chickens. You raise at home the majority of the time. Yep. There are some cons. Oh, I should say they have incredible manure, like the best yes. manure. If you have anybody that has ever gardened with what they call garden gold rabbit poop, that like people will buy it from you yes. if you save it for them. So that is the that's, reason that we currently have rabbits yeah. on our homestead is we just have two right now and they are there just to poop. Like, and, and for the kids to look at, that's pretty much it. I, I had a, some really good garden beds where I loaded them up with a sufficient amount of rabbit poop this last winter, mm -hmm. but I'll, I'll get to the cons now. They do not like the heat and where we're at in Southwest Missouri and Southeast Kansas, it gets hot, like too hot for rabbits oh. without really good ventilation, really good shade. And a lot of times people that are keeping them in uh, a rabbitry in like a shed or something uh, without airflow, like they have to have fans on them or something. I don't remember how yours are set up, but well, I haven't, even, I haven't even told you this yet, but we lost a rabbit yesterday to heat because I didn't, I didn't know that they had to have a fan on them. Uh, so the oldest one, the oldest one passed away and the, other two that we still currently have we pulled them into the garage and put a fan on them for the rest of the week because uh at the time of this recording uh this entire week monday through saturday highs are expected to be at 101 feels like 115 every yeah day. So, yeah we forgot to mention earlier that the heat index have been so ridiculous this week so yeah we, we lost a rabbit yesterday to that because we don't have airflow on them now they were open I mean, our cage is open on three sides, actually four yep. sides, yet to, you know, to wind, but there was just not any wind. Yeah. It had water. It had the frozen water bottle and still. Yeah, this is where a, a colony really shines. I am a big fan. If you're going to do rabbits, I'm a big fan of doing a colony, if you do the colony right. With a colony the heat problems are mitigated. You don't have near as much of a problem because they can dig down into the ground a little bit. I mean, you don't want, you have to have some sort of barrier to prevent them from burrowing out or they will burrow out. But if you have dirt available to them, they will dig down into it. Kind of like a, a chicken dust bath spot that the chickens will hollow out and they'll lay there on that ground and that ground helps keep them cool. Surprisingly. And so it really helps rabbits deal with the heat, but rabbits are hard to keep alive in the heat without a lot of extra, extra problems. No, neither of us lost a chicken. The chickens don't even seem that stressed by the heat index that's happened this week. No, no, they're fine. But the rabbits, they really do not handle the heat well. The other thing is you're going to be incredibly dependent on a feed store if you go into rabbits in a big way for a meat source. Um, you can raise them on grass and hay alone. That's how people did it way back in the day, you know, a uh, hundred, 150 years ago, or 
or back in the ancient days, whenever they uh, were raising them, the Romans were raising them in special little pens. <clears throat> but mm-hmm. you are going to, if you're going to get really good meat production, you're going to have to buy rabbit pellets, which are mostly alpha alpha or Timothy, and they're going to cost you. Yeah. Right now, my rabbit feed is 19 bucks for a 50 pound bag. And whenever I'm running heavy in the breeding season, I'm buying a bag every six days. Let me just add this real quick. In these feed cost considerations, if you live in an area that has a farmer's co-op, please go there and join it and become a member of it and take advantage of that. Because uh, for us, it was a $20 one-time fee to join, and I'm getting rabbit feed for $17 a bag. Yeah, which, I mean, if you're going to keep buying bags of feed, that adds up over time. So that is definitely worth it. Well, and then the chickens, what are you paying for chicken feed right now? Oh man, it's dropped. I think the the kind I like to get, which is nothing really fancy, I think it's around sixteen dollars a a bag. Twelve ninety five at the co op. Yeah, that's a good deal. Yeah. So uh, basically, when it comes to feed specifically, uh, the co ops are making the feed out of what their local farmers are producing. And so you are mitigating and almost completely losing the shipping cost on that. So every product I've ever compared between Tractor Supply and the co-op is cheaper at the co-op. Now, specialty stuff, co-op doesn't have it. Tractor Supply does. not saying Tractor Supply is bad, but you buy local, you'll save money doing this. Yeah. Um, my, My feed costs are cheaper than Tractor Supply. Uh, we don't have a co-op very, very handy, but we have a local feed store down the road in town. And so that's where we get all of our feed. Not We're not crazy. You know, you absolutely have to shop local at all costs, people. Yeah. But it is much more convenient to grab a bag of feed whenever you forgot you're running low from somebody that's local. And his prices are just cheaper. Well, is that about it on the meat? Oh, I was, I was going to say with rabbits... If there are people you know that like rabbit, um, it can go a long way if you're raising rabbits for me to trade them for stuff. Um, there are people at church that really like rabbit, family members that really like rabbit. I give a lot of rabbit away to those people, and um, they absolutely would pay me if I would accept pay from them. And... Uh, Mike at church really, really likes rabbit. I, I get rid of my rabbit livers to him for free. Cause I would just cook them up and feed them to the chickens. Um, but he has been trading me beef back every time I bring him a rabbit and rabbit livers, he brings me some beef back from a cow they bought. So it, it can go a long way in bartering. If you hit that, that niche of people that do actually like rabbit, also, if cooking with rabbit, we should probably mention anything you do with a chicken, you can do with a rabbit. Sure. So if you're worried about taste or eating something you've never ate before, if you've never ate rabbit, it is just like chicken. You should you should definitely try it just to make sure, but get over your fear and try something new and you'll you'll be pleasantly surprised. I think with all the meats that we've talked about, a uh, goat would be the most extreme. But even then, I really liked it the first time I tried it. So, yeah. 
all of these all of these are not as far off as you think so no and we won't get started on the uh processing is done and the big processing plants but i'm more concerned about that than i am about getting a little bit of chicken poop on my chicken meat yeah a lot of stuff washes off surprisingly yeah <laughs> it's almost as if god created it that way and speaking of our lord <laughs> nice we are at an hour now already and we haven't even started talking about bible stuff yet so buckle up we are going to shift gears a little bit just for our first thing that we wanted to cover just for our first topic i just wanted to uh i asked andrew one thing if he could just pick one thing that the church could do to help create leaders because in my opinion and i think andrew agrees uh lack of leaders is probably the biggest issue that the church faces in general is a lack of leadership uh, especially from men because our culture seems to be designed to take men out of leadership and, and to, to not equip them to do what God would want for them to do. So Andrew, if you could pick one thing, and obviously there's more, we're not saying that, that you do this one thing and everything will be fixed. But if you could pick one thing that you think that the church needs to do to create more leaders, especially male leaders, what would it be? So it's hard to narrow it down to one thing, but Yes, what I, I, I think what I think needs to happen the most if we are concerned about leaders in the church being there, and like whenever we talk about it, we're usually looking down the road at 20, 30, 40 years down the road, what the church is going to look like. I think we really need to be serious about uh, raising godly children in our home. And, you know, I, I have three daughters, so I have no sons that I'm raising, but even just from raising Christian children in general, if you, if you're raising Christian children, Christian leaders will mm -hmm. develop out of those <clears throat> Christian children. And so we need to be very intentional and driven to raise Christian children in our homes. If you look at the crisis, the lack of leaders in many, many areas, if you trace it back, you will generally find a family that raised that person uh, or the people that should be potential leaders. Uh, they did not necessarily have a Christian home. They would go to worship. They would say they're a Christian in name, but God was really missing from their lives in their day-to-day -day lives at home. And so if you make God central to your life at home, and everything you do, every aspect of your life, your children are going to see how serious that is. And we all know the proverb, raise up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. That proverb, I think a lot of times we try to like make ourselves feel better about it by saying, well, it's a proverb. It's not always true. And that's why there's so many children that don't stay faithful. But when you look at the church and, and any church in, in general in our culture, but uh, the last statistic I saw specific to the Church of Christ was, I think, around 75% of children are not remaining in the faith, are abandoning the faith for either another another belief system or for no faith at all. 
And you can't tell me that the proverb of raising up a child on the way they should go only holds true 25% of the time. There's a failure that has happened in the church to raise up the children the way they should go, and leaders will develop from that. Obviously, there are exceptions. I'll take a breath here and let you jump in at some point. Mm -hmm. But whenever, whenever we look at men like Josiah in the Old Testament, we see an exception to the proverb. He had a terrible... Uh, well, I, I should tone down a little bit about Manasseh because he repented. But bad grandpa, for the most part, terrible, wicked father. And Josiah broke that mold. It's possible for people to do that. But statistically, if we want leaders in the church, we can't look for the exception to the rule. We have to, we have to drive for the rule. We have to pull for the rule, which would be raising up Christian children in our homes and telling them, that God is the most important thing in your life and showing that by your life. And I've got one Bible verse to kind of go along with that in Proverbs 20 and, Proverbs 20 and verse 7. The righteous who walks in his integrity, blessed are his children after him. If you are walking in integrity and raising your children in integrity, they will grow up to be men and women of integrity that can step up to be leaders in the necessary roles God wants them to fulfill. I also want to, to clarify and to add here uh, that modeling what it means to be a Christian does not just mean taking them to church and like screaming out the door as fast as you can after church to get to yeah. lunch yeah, and then, then wait another week and go to church on Sunday morning and complain about it the entire time. Uh, just fathers taking their kids to church is not going to cut it either because right. I've seen, and I've have, I've seen it. I'm watching it happen uh, with people that I know. And some of my friends from growing up, their father took them to church 99% of the time, but you know, that there was something at the home that was lacking there that this did not allow them to mentally want to remain Christians. Yeah. If that makes sense. Uh, they just, that example was not there no matter how many times you get them to the building. Right. Deuteronomy six is like the best spot to show you. Like, if you want to raise godly children, this is how you need to go about it. Uh, I don't know how deep into Bible verses we were going to go when talking about this, but. Well, it's the Bible. Yeah. So. <laughs> as deep as we want to in in deuteronomy 6 god is telling the israelites this is how you're going to keep your children faithful how you're supposed to raise your children and in verse 7 sorry in verse 6 it says these words that i command you today shall be on your heart so like we're not just like daniel was saying we're not just going to church we are literally putting the words of God in our heart, on our heart. And that is supposed to be the hallmark of a Christian. The law of Moses was written on stone. And Paul uses that example in the uh, first or second Corinthians. I think it's first Corinthians to talk about how Christians have the law of God written on their heart. If you're a Christian, you need to have the law of God written on your heart. And then in verse seven, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, 
When you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. And then he goes on a little bit more. But like literally you're supposed to be uh, talking about the law of God and by extension your love of God continuously. Doesn't mean we don't talk about chickens or goats or trees or anything else that we do at Homestead. Doesn't mean we don't go to work. But as a general rule, whenever you're raising your children, you are talking to them about God, about his creation, about his law, how he wants you to live your life. And the part that I really find interesting is in uh, verse eight, bind them as a sign on your hand and be frontlets between your eyes, write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Like you are supposed to make the law of God and your love for God, a part of your life to the part, part to the, I'm sorry, to the point where it's a part of your home. And so absolutely, it's not just showing up on Sunday. It is like a way of being, a way of life for you that by extension goes out to your children. And when you look at the droves of people, especially in our age group, you know, the the millennial age group, you saw mm-hmm. massive, like right there at Gen X and and Zennials and Millennials, you saw a huge, you know, like wave after wave of youth leaving the church. And so in our age group, I think there was a failure for the youth to make the faith their own on their end, but also on the parents' end for them to live out Deuteronomy 6 in their home. And so their children just didn't make their faith their own and fell away. Now, this is a whole nother conversation, but I want to share this story real quick at this time. The uh, When we went to Israel, yeah. we were flying out of the airport in Athens to Tel Aviv. And uh, there was an Orthodox Jew who was on the flight with us. And we watched him before the flight go around to all the people who were Jewish, whether they were Orthodox or not. And he had uh, those phylacteries, the the their interpretation of the literal command of bind them on your heart and your head mm-hmm. and anybody who was jewish who was getting on that flight he had asked them and basically was begging them to to pray with him with those bound to him and it's a for those of you who don't know it's a little black box with a giant ribbon around it and he would bind it to different parts of their body uh and they would pray and inside that box are literally written out scriptures and i can't i can't read that verse anymore without thinking about that and like i said that's a whole nother conversation about jewish orthodoxy and all that stuff but one of the things i love is the fact uh that that they take some of that so literally yeah now obviously there's more to it than that but you know your your kids should see you interacting with the bible yeah. Actually oh, picking it up, opening it. And this is something I'm really bad at because I keep all of my physical Bibles at the church building in my office. And I just read the Bible at home on my phone. But the more I think about it, uh, and I need to do better at this, but my kids don't know I'm not just playing on my phone. You know, they don't know, oh, dad's reading his Bible on his phone. They just think, oh, dad's playing on his phone again, which I'm yeah. bad about that too. But there should be, you're not doing it 
to be seen by others because there's a boatload of verses that tell us why that's not a good idea. But there is this visible component of it should be able to be seen by outsiders. Yeah. And <clears throat> this isn't a silver bullet by any means. So it doesn't just magically fix the problem of raising yeah. godly children, which turn into godly leaders. But uh, every day, it, with the ex- I make the exception of Wednesday nights because we've been at Bible study all evening and we're getting home late at, at bedtime or after usually. Um, I think everybody should do a nightly Bible time. And that doesn't just extend to people with kids. Everybody should have like a set time where they make time to study God's word. But with kids, it shows you that it is a daily part of our lives. You have to obviously carry out, you know, the godly living through the rest of your life. Again, this isn't a silver bullet that just fixes everything. You have to be consistent in your life. But having a set time in the evening is like one of the most fantastic parenting tips of raising kids that care about God that anyone has ever given me. And I try to pass that on to everyone else that will listen. Um, we call it, we call it Bible time. doesn't have to be anything fancy, but if you have a Bible time or something like that with your kids, it makes a really big difference. I think. Yeah. I, the only thing I disagree with on that is uh, in the evening because we're always tired and more grouchy in the evening. Yeah. And I I would argue, and again, if this, I think this is what works best for your family, and here's why. But there is a commandment that we are told, that we are told all throughout Scripture to give our best to God. And it depends on what kind of person you are, whether you're a morning person or an evening person or an afternoon person. Yeah, uh, but part of that giving your best to God should be giving the best part of the time of your day. Oh, but this is the time that we really like to watch our favorite show on Disney Plus. Oh, this is our favorite time to do this or that. No, you give God the best time of day. So yeah. my only addendum to that is, which my wife really likes doing Bible time right before bed. I don't because the kids are always insane. Yeah, so we're, I, mo- I we're mostly night owls over here, so that yeah. it works best for us. Yeah, so again, that that goes back to your family because that commandment is broad enough for interpretation. What is the best? You know, yeah. when, it, when it came to Cain and Abel, right, they were still presenting different offerings to God, but one was presenting the best and one was not. Yeah. So. Yeah, if there's a family of lunatics out there that wants to wake up early and, and do Bible time in the morning, man more power to those people (laughs) one of one of the people i think might actually listen to this podcast is my friend dan and dan gets up at four o'clock in the morning to work out and read bible and stuff he is that lunatic i've called him out from the pulpit and said you're insane but i appreciate your example uh so dan if you're listening i still think you're insane for getting up at four in the morning but more power to you brother so uh i will add on to that so my opinion is basically the same and slightly different on what the one thing the church could be doing and my word that i'm going to sum it up in is mentorship so uh Obviously, this takes the form of fathers teaching their kids and everything that Andrew has just talked about. 
Uh, I would add, though, for for those situations where there has already been some sort of family error that cannot be corrected, a divorce that cannot be corrected, a relationship that cannot be rectified, mentorship, uh, it should be happening even in good family situations, but mentorship can also help fix some of those those mistakes and those slip-ups and those cracks that can happen and will continue to happen for the rest of time because we are not a perfect people and we will never have perfect families. Mm-hmm. So uh, with mentorship, especially my go-to person is Paul. Paul is the ultimate mentor in scripture other than of course, Jesus, Jesus picked. Uh, he had 72 disciples at one time that he was mentoring, but he specifically had uh, 12 apostles that he mentored. And then he specifically had the inner three, Peter, James, and John that he mentored quite a bit as well. But, Aside from Jesus, Paul. Uh, Paul is a good example of what it looks like to mentor people. You can name people he worked with all throughout uh, his career as an evangelist and as a missionary, depending on how you want to term it. My favorite example is the one with Timothy, because specifically in Timothy's case, we are told in Acts chapter 16 uh, that he did not have a father who was willing to do the things that Jewish fathers were supposed to do, specifically circumcise their sons. And so um, Timothy, uh, so Paul actually took Timothy under his wing. He had a, Timothy had a great mother and a great grandmother. uh, As Paul talked about in first, is it first Timothy chapter one or second Timothy chapter one? I'm, I don't remember off the top of my head. It's one of those two. (laughs) It's one. I'll narrow it down to one of those two books. It's in the first chapter. His mother Lois and his grandmother Eunice, but he did not have a father who was going to step up and take care of that. So Paul actually, when Timothy was older, Paul circumcised him to help him kind of find his place in the church and took him around uh, and helped him to become the teacher and the preacher that he ended up being. Yeah. Now. Not all of his mentorship efforts were successful. Paul, at one time, one of the first mentors we learn about was John Mark with him and Barnabas. And him and Barnabas actually disagreed over how to deal with what John Mark had done by bailing out of the first missionary trip. And so Paul basically ended up stepping away from mentoring him. But also you see later on in the epistles that he references him as a faithful worker. So that, it worked that was, out. That was beneficial to him. Yes, that was beneficial to him. Thank you for reminding me of the wording there. So mentorship, if men in the church today specifically, but women as well, you see this talked about in Titus chapter 2. But if they would actually go out of their way to interact one-on-one, again, not just on Sunday morning and Wednesday nights, but go out of their way to interact one-on-one with others in the congregation and and lift them up and encourage them and help them, that could start to fill a lot of the gaps by potential uh, family mishaps, in my opinion. Absolutely. One, One other thing that mentorship accomplishes that you didn't mention yet is if you will look at it from, I'm coming back to the the side where we have the ideal of a, a nuclear family. Everybody's a Christian. 
and you know the children are being raised in a godly home if you want your children to stay faithful to the church to god for the duration of their life statistically it is not a youth group that anchors them to the church and that's what a lot of people seem to focus on whenever they're this isn't the correct wording, but shopping for a church, whenever they're looking for where they are going to make, uh, make themselves a part of a congregation. Mm-hmm. One of the things they look at is, are there other kids there? My kids age. Cause I want my kids to have friends that are Christians and have other kids their own age to play with and interact with. Statistically that does nothing for them being faithful to God for the rest of their life. What really does make a difference is faithful parents, faithful, active parents. We're not just talking about showing up on Sunday, but people that are active and working in the church. And the second biggest thing, which I find extremely striking, is intergenerational relationships. They Mm -hmm. have an old person that is not a member of their family that invests in them the way Daniel's talking about. And it doesn't even have to be to the level of mentorship, just a connection where they're close, they're, they visit, they're friends, they exchange gifts or cards or whatever, and they really enjoy interacting with people. And that does a ton to anchor kids to the church because it shows that it's not just the people their own age that care about them. It's not just your parents or the preacher that cares about them. It's everybody in the church, even the yes. old people that are invested in them as people and as children of God and mentorship accomplishes that by creating those relationships where you help create faithful children from ideal family situations and non-ideal family situations. Mm -hmm. I'll add a couple things onto that. Just first of all, looking back on my own personal experience in life, I remember Just as much as I remember any youth group event, I remember the older folks that we would go and visit and meet. Uh, I can even name names of people that have been gone for a really long time, but I still remember them and I remember their faces uh, and, you know, the kindness that they were showed to me and my family. Uh, It also helped that my grandfather was an elder at that congregation. And so he took me visiting with him on a few occasions, which that was mentorship right there even though it was my grandfather i remember him you know all the other kids were playing around and he's like let's go visit these older folks and i remember being bored at their houses and it smelling funny and being weird but i i remember it more than i remember just playing around and goofing around you know with the other kids my age and so looking back at that i really cherish those times even if i thought they smelled funny at the time you know what i mean yeah and then the other thing that i'll add uh, specifically with mentorship is in the case of the church is lacking in potential elders and deacons which is a, something very common in today's world i think especially men need to be men who are qualified need to be mentoring and men who are not qualified to be elders need to be mentoring just in the terms of don't do what I do or do what I do to some degree. And that, that interaction there is going to help prepare men to be deacons and elders a lot quicker than just, you know, kind of like, here's the title, do something with it. 
Instead, show them what that work looks like and show them what that life looks like and then see if they're ready to handle it or not. Yeah. We might add in here that I don't think we discussed this previously. Evangelism and church growth goes a long way to developing leaders as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, I've been looking at it from a uh, an organic, we are creating our own future leaders in the families of Christians because that is the cleanest easiest, most God-approved route of developing leaders. But if you are doing evangelism as a, as a church the way you're supposed to, and there is growth by converting people that weren't raised as Christians like mm-hmm. there should be with evangelism, out of that growth, you get far more potential leaders that could come into the church the way they're supposed to as well. If you're just trying to replace the leaders you have or uh, yeah. replace leaders you don't have with homegrown, you know, our kids out coming up out of our families, you're eventually probably going to run dry on that well. Oh, yeah, here we go. Acts 14, this is what I'm looking at. This is on the first missionary trip. They've gone through the region of Galatia, specifically uh, like Derby and Iconium and Lystra and all those other places. Mm-hmm. Uh, they didn't go straight back. They went they went out there and then they came back the same way through those same towns. And it specifically says in verse 23, and this is congregations that are like at most six months to a year old. It specifically says, that they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting. They committed them to the Lord in whom they believe. So there is a potential. I think our culture in the United States of America makes this harder, but there is a potential for a very serious uh, six-month-old or one-year Christian to be an elder. Yeah, I think it depends a lot on background. Yes, I mean, if you I have somebody agree. that's a babe and has no familiarity with the Bible, obviously that's a, a terrible recipe. But if you have somebody that has been in the Bible their whole life and was just wrong, they just believe the wrong things. Well, and they are converted. Also, if you look at that, if you look at that situation, I think it's also talking about the Jewish people who were already serious about following God. Correct. Yeah. So this is not saying you know, as long as they've been a Christian at least six months, they're ready to go. But a lot of people, the point I'm trying to make is a lot of people feel like it's going to take you 40, 50, 60, 70 years to prove that you're ready for this job. When Paul appointed people that have been Christians six months to a year. Yeah. So just, it doesn't take your time frame is not the same as God's time frame. Yeah. Well, is this kind of a, a good stopping spot? We're at about an hour and a half on time. Probably. I can uh, I can talk for about another four hours, so. I know. Some things we learned from this podcast. Go raise your family and have Bible time. Mentor some people and buy some chickens. Yep. Chicken, chickens are the best but besides Jesus. Besides Jesus, chickens are the next best thing. And on that note, we will let you go. Good night, and thank you all very much for hanging out with us. This has been the Five Acre Parables podcast, uh, and we're going to sign off for tonight. You have been listening to the Five Acre Parables podcast.